Racer X podcast. Brought to you by the world's number one source of motocross and supercross news and entertainment. RacerXOnline.com. Jason Wygant here, your host, David Pingree. This is the Racer X podcast with your hosts, Jason Wygant and David Pingree. Good day to you. Welcome to our studios here in a very rainy Morgantown, West Virginia, as we prepare for the coming of the 2010 Lucas Oil AMA Pro Motocross Championship. It's springtime rolling into summer, and we're going to have a little bit different feel here for our Racer X podcast today. It's going to be Jason Wygant, myself, taking this one solo with a whole lot of guests on board as we're going to celebrate what are the most epic times in the history of American and really world motocross as we celebrate the dominant performance in the fall of 1982 in the trophy and motocross donations by Danny Magoo Chandler. Of course, we're all saddened by the loss of Danny on May the 4th, 2010. Danny was certainly one of the most spectacular, one of the wildest, and one of the most fan-friendly riders of all time. And though he doesn't have an unbelievable win record of races and championships, anyone that ever watched him ride can certainly tell you he was one of their favorite riders. And for two magical weekends in 1982 at the Trophy of Motocross Donations, well, he might have simply been the fastest and the best motocross rider in the world. Danny Chandler was born on October 5, 1959 in Sacramento, California. And as soon as Danny started making reputation as a racer himself, that reputation was not just about speed. It was about his spectacular win-or-crash riding style. And by 1981, he had picked up some support from Team Honda. In that very same year, Honda had spearheaded an effort to go and bring the United States team to the motocross donations. And while they were considered a B team by many, they romped home with the first ever motocross donations victory for the United States. For 1982, Honda packaged the effort again, and Chandler was now on board with the factory team and, of course, placed on the donations team as well. The 1981 victory was a bit of an upset. The United States team still wasn't a favorite necessarily coming in, especially with a wild child like Danny Chandler on board. But things would be a lot different when the two weekends had concluded. Yes, back then they raced two weekends. Four riders from each country would race on 250s in the Trophy Donations. In this particular case, that race took place in Galdorf, West Germany. And then the next weekend, all four riders from each country met again on 500s, this time in Woland, Switzerland. It was a bit of a ragtag group of American riders. The team consisted of Chandler, Johnny O'Mara, Jim Gibson, and the leader was supposed to be Donnie Hansen, who had rallied to the 1982 AMA Supercross and 250 National Championships. But unfortunately, Hansen was lost to injury right before the event, and a young upstart named David Bailey came in to fill his considerable shoes. Four young riders, relatively unproven as far as championships were concerned, it was going to be a tall order for the United States to repeat their 1981 motocross and trophy donations victory. But Danny Magoo Chandler had some special performances packed in his bags when he headed to Europe. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The spectacular rides in 1982 for Magoo. Our guest today, those that were involved with the team. That includes the team manager of Honda and that donation squad, Dave Arnold, and the team members, David Bailey, Johnny O'Mara, Jim Gibson, Donnie Hansen. Let's get it started with Dave Arnold describing the choice of the 1982 motocross and trophy donations teams. To put together the 81 team, which was O'Mara for the trophy donations, O'Mara, Donnie Hansen, Chuck Sennel, Laporte, they were not first string riders, and it was kind of a it was kind of a motocross action. Roger Bell, Ray Tourcone, mm-hmm. and of course everybody knows the success of that um, underdog team like that, which they won, and it was a big upset in 1981. So, flash forwarding to what we're, what we're talking here with Magoo in 82, 
you know, Europe was still kind of upside down that there was this big upset. I mean, this is a team that they weren't even going to pay a parent's money. To, they were really kind of bad-mouthing because we didn't bring the top riders, which was Hannah and Barnett and whoever else. And, uh, and, and, then, and then not only in 82, you know, yes, Donnie Hansen did win the national championship and Supercross championship in 82, but he got injured just before this event that you're talking about yep. in, in, um, for Trophy Nation. So Bailey was a last-minute, you know, Donnie got injured, get over here really quick. So three out of the four riders were not even a part of the 81 effort. Mm-hmm. And even even that was kind of controversial. Like, I mean, the, Europe was confused. The press was confused. Like, so what's this? I mean, you guys aren't even coming back with the same guys. And who are these? They, they, hadn't, they weren't even very familiar with all the players. Perhaps the most heralded player on the team was Hansen who had won two major championships that year. Unfortunately, an injury, though, would prevent him from even racing in the trophy and motocross donations that season. After I, w- I clinched everything here in the States, I went back to uh, the last GP, GP in Vimmerby, Sweden, where I um, had won uh, both motos. I, mm-hmm. I won and Laporte clinched the title that weekend. Two Americans won world titles that year, but you also won the last GP. I didn't realize that. So it was really changing the balance of power almost instantly. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, so a couple days after that, we went to do some testing, do some practicing or whatever it was at Rolf Diffenbach's practice track yeah. in Germany. In mm-hmm. Germany. And uh, me and uh, Chandler, me and Magoo, were dressed first. And we were out there before the rest of the riders. Mm-hmm. And there's this one section. Uh, it was like a, a triple section that uh, I was doing. Yep. Uh, and for whatever reason, this one lap, I uh, I did I did something wrong. I don't I don't know if I cased it and got off or overjumped and got off. But whatever it is, whatever it was, <clears throat> I did get off. And uh, yep. And I didn't realize it at the time, but. Um, I, I saw some pictures later on when I was at Gibson's house that uh, they, they helicoptered me out of there. How bad was Hansen's crash? Well, he would never return to professional racing action again and would never have a chance to defend his 1982 number one plates. His teammate for the Donations team and on Team Honda, Jim Gibson, recounts just how horrible the impact was. He wasn't trying to jump. He was just doing the double one, and he clipped, clipped it wrong or something, and he hit his head, you know, so hard. They said they I've never seen an impact like that on the inside of a helmet. With Hanson out, Team USA needed a fourth rider, so they made a call back home to David Bailey. Yeah, real early in the morning, my mom came over and woke me up. It was after the season. I didn't even have any riding gear left. I used to give stuff to my friends. And and um, so I, you know, she's like, it's Dave Arnold. You know, <laughs> I was over on the phone, and I, and I kind of, I forgot that they were even over there. You know, and it's early in the morning, so I'm not... I think it was like 6 o'clock or something. I didn't have any reason to be up early at that point in the season, so it took me half the phone call to kind of figure out, like, okay, what? And I, and I wasn't really aware. Dave didn't say that, you know, the extent of what had happened. It was just, hey, we need you over here. We need you to fly into Frankfurt. And I'm like, Frankfurt? Beans in Frankfurt? When the heck is Frankfurt? You know? My yeah, yeah, yeah. An Atlas. Like, where even is that, you know? So I get, uh, as it turned out, the last seat on a flight from Greensboro up to New York and then over there, and um, Spencer picks me up at the airport, kind of fills me in on Donnie, but the, the sugar-coated version, yep. and um, we have a job to do, and, you know, as he's talking to me, I'm thinking, 
man, ship this car, you know? It's like revving to the moon, can't you tell, you know? <laughs> and then I realized we're doing like 110 on the Audubon. Wow. I'd never been to Europe before. So then I, you know, I said something to him. He's like, hey, it's, <laughs> it's shifted and we're, you know, we're hitting the rev limiter. And, um, <laughs> you know, then I was like, wow, you know what? It started to sink in, like, I'm in Europe. And I had just gotten to know Donnie at the end of the Supercross season and really was impressed. Like, no wonder this guy won everything. I thought he was just getting starts and was having a good year. But he worked hard. He, he did some amazing off-road, you know, trail riding, climbing cliffs, jump fences, and layout tracks. And, you know, I was like, I thought Hannah was the only guy that did that. Donnie was amazing. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I, I was bummed that, you know, that uh, when I learned what was going on. But, you know, we did have a job to do. And I had to ride his bike. And it was all different. The, some of the wives and the girlfriends and, and the women that were part of the team that, you know, go into town, do the shopping and all that stuff, they cut out some material and put my name over Hanson's on the JT jersey. I was still fucked by then. And then I borrowed one of, each guy got two helmets and uh, from Bell, and I, I borrowed Danny's extra helmet and took his crazy visor off and put on mine. <laughs> and uh, went out there and just had big shoes to fill. Having such young, unproven talent on the team made winning for Team USA a risky proposition, especially with Danny Magoo Chandler on board, the ultimate wild card. One thing about Magoo being on the team, I mean, Magoo, um, Magoo was a super fast guy. I mean, we, we ended up, he wasn't really a, a factory uh, supported writer going into that season. But, um, you know, Magoo, I was thinking about this prior to this interview, and he reminded me a lot of Bob Hanna in the way that he rode on the edge, and, and he wasn't always on the motorcycle, but Bob still rode within his limits. Bob was still able, I think, the press and Jody, they would say he had cat-like reflexes. I mean, you saw pictures of Bob Hanna with one hand on the bar doing flying debuts, but yeah. he rarely fell off. He always got back on before he hit the ground, you know. Yeah. but. And Magoo wasn't really that. I mean, Magoo rode further out on the edge, and he didn't always get back on the bike. <laughs> so that makes it a kind of a risky proposition, I would think, going in uh, to have a guy like that on the team. You just don't know what you're going to get. It, 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 I don't know. I, I don't want to, uh, you know, God, God bless Danny, and, and yep. I don't want to under, underwrite it, but I mean, I think it was totally risky. For a lot of guys, me included, Danny represented what was possible because he didn't seem to have that little fear chip that the rest of us have. Mm -hmm. So he would just mad it and get through something, and we'd go, oh, well, I guess you can't hold it wide open through there. <laughs> there were other times when you'd see him do that and be like, forget it, there's no way in the world I'm gonna take that kind of a risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it, when it came to what was possible, I think, you know, he was setting the bar, and, and it wasn't always smooth, it wasn't always well thought out or maybe even smart but you know I, I've told people before and, and especially now since a lot of people have called me about Danny that he was kind of like the original Pastrana you know he was um, maybe not as uh, analytical about things but he, he went for it nothing he would back down from nothing <laughs> well, you know, I think like if I'm speaking for like myself or Bailey, because yep. we were so close back then and we were such like technique guys, um, we kind of shook our head. It's like, geez, man, I, we could never ride like that because we didn't, 
we always rode in our comfort zone. You know, we're real methodical, and uh, you know, so it was to watch something like that. It was very entertaining, and like we'd just sit there and shake our head, going, "Dude, there's no way in the world we can go through a section like that because we never would lay it on the line like that." I mean, uh, I know I wouldn't. Um, yeah. But we did. We did see that that heart and determination, and I think that probably would transpire over to us more than like just the raw speed or going geez i mean that guy wants to friggin ride so hard it was just insane to watch but i remember danny he had come to saddleback and you know i was kind of a technical saddleback specialist so i usually could beat him there but i i knew you know i knew it was it was kind of hard for him there because it was so technical but then i had the opportunity one time to go up north with uh, some of the california series and to watch him ride on some of his home tracks and like one time my bike broke down and I was at this one race and I got the chance to sit on top of this motorhome and watch him race. I don't know if it's the 250 or the 500, but he was on like the 81 Mako. <laughs> and uh, oh my God, I just it just scared me as a even as a pro expert, it scared <laughs> me to watch him ride. He would go wide open down these straightaways, a straight just a straight straightaway, and just go into this jump and then. It wasn't a double or a table or anything like that. You just you hit it, and he would hit a fifth gear wide open, and he would do something similar to like a Bubba scrub. Yep. And he'd just lay the thing down on the face and throw this thing completely sideways and flat, and then just land it, flat land it, you know. And uh, then he's going on the track, and I'm up on top of this motorhome, and he makes a couple of turns, and he goes into this little slow turn, and he almost stops. He looks up at me, just smiling, <laughs> you know. And he, somehow he knew where I was sitting on top of this motorhome. And then he just took off and just won, you know, won the race by miles. And I was like, he had got kind of a bad start, but he was kind of coming through guys, flying off this jump totally sideways, you know, through about, you know, 10 guys on the straightaway. And um, after that, I was just a huge Magoo fan. I just, you couldn't even, you know, you just had to sit there and, and appreciate his the art, his art, you know. I wasn't a scared, scared guy on two wheels. I, I'd say there's never been a guy... That would just put it on the line like he does. It's uh, that's first thing I think anyone would say. I mean, there's nobody that rode that hard, and the guy just wasn't scared, and and that's what Magoo was all about. Yes, clearly Magoo was all about going for it, and he wasn't about to change that style as the team moved to Europe to prepare for the donations. Let's pick it up again with Dave Arnold. What I, what I remember is Danny. Danny was amped up, and. I remember, I, I remember in practice, um, I think the first race might have been Galdorf, I think it was, but yep. I remember there being, um, you know, he was pinning it. I mean, he, he was amped up, and he was on his game for that race. And I, I, I remember early on in practice, um, you know, everybody kind of comes in, they do a few laps, and then they adjust the suspension, and then they make comments, and they talk to their mechanics, and... You know, and maybe the well. I think it even for all those races, there's even it leads up to a time practice, right? Uh-huh. But but even even before then, I remember um, Magoo asking Roger myself to have the FIM trim trim this tree off the back of the track. There was you know once they left this side of the course, they went over a ridge and there was a big oak tree and it had a limb. And you know he was getting I guess he was getting more air than anybody else off this jump, and he wanted it trimmed. Okay, you know so. That didn't seem to be unreasonable, and Roger, I think, was talking and trying to get the FIM guys to take care of that. But then it was the other riders that were, I remember David and Johnny, 
we were pretty good friends through the whole career. They were talking about you cannot believe this. What Magoo? You you got to go back there and just watch what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there was a um, a picture that came out in the press after the race, and I believe it was Romans and and was down on the ground. And Magoo, even after this tree got trimmed, I mean, he was getting so much air off this jump. And even he had, you know how Magoo would kind of do the big pancake thing and whip it. And, I mean, he started a lot of this scrub and body English and before Jeremy or anybody else. And Magoo had the thing completely pancaked, and he was completely, like, as flat on the bike as he could possibly get. And even after they'd cut this tree, he's way up in the air. He's still close to some other limbs in this tree. And I remember there was a picture of Romans on the ground looking up, way up over his head, and he was in fear for his life almost that he was going to get landed on. After practice, the, there was a big stink in the pits, you know, and I could see some commotion going on. When I came in from practice, I'm like, I wonder what's going on, you know? And they had to trim tree branches and stuff in this back section where he was jumping so far down a hill. And that track's been there since, you know, forever. Yeah. No one's never been an issue, but they had to actually after talking with roger and you know not really into it they finally went and trimmed those trees they had to alter the track to accommodate for danny's speed and ambition it was you you know to the americans that that are semi not used to them but i mean magoo was out there relative to a lot of the americans that cut their teeth on supercross right unlike unlike europe you know it was all grand prix and, and more natural terrain and bumps and i don't think they were used to getting as much air as, as most of the Americans, and and uh, you know that was kind of their deal. I think I think again because a lot of this technique was developed in Supercross, becoming so popular in the states during the 70s. But um, but Magoo, I mean I mean the Europeans. Okay, this guy got more than air. I mean this guy was out there, and and I think they even viewed him as being dangerous. I mean I think there was even talk from other riders about um, to the FIM. To, I don't know if disqualif- disqualifying him or protesting his riding style, but I mean, this guy is dangerous. But and, and, and they weren't very comfortable riding with a guy that the, was that they considered crazy. Oddly, a lot of the riders in Europe thought that Magoo was crazy, but at the same time, many feel that the European tracks lent themselves to his style better than the ones in the United States. Here's Jim Gibson. Yeah, you know, uh, in retrospect, to think about it, and I heard some people make some comments that. It really, probably the European tracks really lended to his style because um, he wasn't a real tech, technical rider. I think maybe like, you know, in Supercross too, maybe sometimes he had a little bit of trouble in Supercross because it was so technical. But on that, those outdoors there were really fast, you know, natural terrain, up, big uphill, downhill, super rough, but like real wide. Like the tracks were usually like twice as wide as the normal motocross track. So he, so he had all this room to just <laughs> swap and get out of control and slide, you know, and then save it and get and get, you know, get back on it and and get going again. So and he had kind of that drifting style. So he just put the bike, you know, in the general area, going twice as fast as everybody else, and then just kind of slid, slid and drifted through, you know, all those sections. I mean, it wasn't like he couldn't hit a line. I mean, obviously he did, but that was just kind of his style, a little looser a little hotter, uh, a little faster than everybody else. He just needed, I think he needed a little more room. So Magoo looked fast in practice, but would it actually translate into race speed? 
Let's talk again to Dave Arnold. I believe he had the fastest times. I mean, all the Americans were riding. The whole team rode really well mm -hmm. in time practice, probably even better than we did the previous year in 81 um, <clears throat> as a overall. But uh, I remember Magoo was, was faster than the other guys, and I remember he asked Roger and I, he said, if I don't get a decent start, can you make sure you give the other Honda riders some sort of a sign to let them know that I'm coming through so they don't hold me up because <laughs> our bikes were fast and our bikes were working really good and all that stuff. And so, you know, he was all hell-bent to frickin' win. I mean, I, I wanted to win as a team effort, right? And I was hoping Danny, of course, Danny was fast enough to win a moto or, or, or maybe two. But then, you know, I was more concerned with everybody just staying on the bikes and, and, and making sure the overall result was was going to be what we needed and uh but I, but i can remember i i can remember so we're supposed to give these other guys a sign which is awkward right i mean we're not going to run out there and hey johnny pull over david you know what i mean it's right it's, within a team it's not very popular to go out there and tell a guy of johnny and david hey you're being a slug you know and you got to move over for this other you know another teammate right yep especially when they're up front and uh, so, in any case, I don't know if it was the first lap, but, I mean, it might have been the second. And Danny was probably got off around maybe 10th place, somewhere around there on the start. Magoo came through the pack, and pretty soon I remember him getting in, like, third place or fourth place. And he came through the mechanic area on the second lap, and I remember him. He was pointing like a madman, like, to make sure that, you know, I mean, we, we hadn't moved those guys yet, right? Get them out of the way. And uh, one hand on the bar, and the other hand just freaking, come on, you know, you guys do your job, I'm doing mine, Get you know, give me some room here. And uh, I was like, I mean, Roger and I were like, oh, my God. I never even saw Danny the first week. He was gone. He was unbelievable fast. Eddie dominated both motos. I don't remember. I know that David rode super well and Johnny rode super well. Um, you know, and I think, and I think, I think, I think Jim did exceptional. I mean, as a team, they, but, but Magoo dominated both motos. And I think, uh, whoever thought they were close, maybe even in the last moto of the 500, maybe it was, but I mean, all four motos, the guy was flawless and, and he was clearly better than anybody else on the track. I remember one of the starts got a huge hole shot. I figured he must have backed up about 10 feet and wheelied into the gate as it went down because he had this gigantic hole shot. Uh. And he was just so motivated. And then he had a big race with Romans, and there was this, like, double, like, step down, sit downhill thing that everybody was just kind of casing it as they went down. And Magoo just hit it wide open and clipped the top of this thing as he went down and, and feet off into the corner and goes around Broman's. You know, it's just hanging off the bike, Bob Hanna style. And uh, so I found out later how motivated he was. <laughs> At the end of that first uh, weekend there when he wins both motos, that was on the on the 250s. I mean, were you guys in shock? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like was, that much yes, we, we yeah. were in shock. And, yeah, you know, yes, there was the beer tent like there always is and tour cone. And, you know, we're all semi-health nuts. I mean, Roger, I might have a beer and Roger might have a beer because... You know, his, he's European, but that's about it, right? We're not real partiers. Right. And Johnny and David were close to being saints because they had a trainer that, you know, kept them on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. And Magoo, I remember him just pounding down pitchers of beer and jumping up and down on the table and pouring beer over, you know, 
I think it was Ar- Arthur Cohn and him were getting along because, you know, Arthur Cohn was a Belgian. Belgians really like their beer, you know. So. Sure. Um, but, but there was some celebrating afterwards and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was blown away. I, I, I was, I guess, shocked would have been the right word. I mean, happy and, and, and oh, somewhat surprised that, I mean, honestly, not to, but, but you know, Danny, as fast as he was, just, just to stay on the bike, at, he rode so close to the edge. Well, it was, I think everybody was, like, shocked. I mean, even to, first of all, I mean, look at this team, okay? Gibson, mm-hmm. um, he, he was a good rider, but he was always kind of thirds and fourths and never quite, it wasn't like he's, yeah, definitely, we've got to send Gibson. Right. Not making fun of him or anything, I'm just saying, he wouldn't would be the first or second or maybe even the third pick. Right. Um, Johnny made sense because he was there in 81 and, and proved himself. And, um, uh, you know, it made sense, of course, to have Donnie back, but once he was out, I mean, me? What had I done up to then? You know, I was, I showed some potential here and there, but I was still kind of cutting teeth at that point. Now I got to represent the U.S. and kind of come in and prove 81 was, was the real deal. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been the guy to pick. And then with Danny, he was like, <sighs> pretty risky guy to send over there because he said they're going to, crash 14 times or or who knows right and he, uh so we were kind of all shocked you know and i think roger and some of us were trying to uh tone him down a little bit hey don't don't drink so much beer dude we got another <laughs> week to go and that's enough backflips and we were staying in this hotel that had three different pools it was really cool around the river and and they had a big a big cold water salt water pool and like a medium one and a really hot one. And anyway, you know, you're not supposed to jump in and, and swim around and stuff. It's a dissipating side. There's all these old people with swim caps kind of in there, you know, just walking around. And and Danny just, you know, cannonball, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not getting us thrown out of the place. So he was just uh, in rare form mm-hmm. and at a, a point in his, his career, I guess, or whatever, where... He, he just had it together and was confident in himself and knew that he could go that fast and pull it off. And I never saw him real squirrely like I had seen him at other times where you're watching him going, oh, where oh, you just flinch, going, man, this ain't going to last much, much longer. Yeah. Uh, you know, even the flaggers are kind of like ready with the flag, you know, when he comes <laughs> by at times. And over there, he was smooth. He was just, imagine mixing like, you know, Stewart on his most, you know, uh, intense day where he maybe goes down the first turn, starts riding like crazy, and mix that with like Wyndham. Wow, that's what that's what Danny rode like. So it was, it was pretty rare. With his spectacular performance at the Trophy de Nations on a 250 under his belt, many were wondering if Magoo could repeat that performance on a 500 the next weekend in Switzerland. Here's Dave Arnold with more. Some of those guys that like Ricky Johnson that are really good on a 250, you know, they, 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 they're they're really good at a bike that can kind of hold wide open. A little, it's got a little bit of that 125 character, you know, where you can you you can almost ride the thing wide open. Not quite, you know, but you can't do that on a 500. Uh, you know what I mean? Especially some of these works bikes that made, you know, way over in, in the high 50, close to 60 horsepower, some of these things. I mm-hmm. mean... But uh, and, and that's probably the scare. Looking back with Danny was, 
you know, okay, well, we did it on a 250, but, you know, 500s are different. And it wasn't, there were some guys that could cross over pretty easily, and then there's some guys that, like, I, like I'd say, um, you know, like I think Ricky Johnson was not as successful on a 500 because of his, the style that he had and, and how well matched it was for a 250. Bailey, on the other hand, he was extremely, he was almost the other way. He was really good on a 250, but it was superb on a 500 because of his timing and his technique and throttle control. But you can't always say that Magoo had timing, technique, and throttle control. So, you know, yeah, I, I'm sure I'm sure we were um, nervous about that, maybe even as much or more. Well, for sure, maybe even more than the 250. Well, the 500, I remember, was all, like all rocks. And, and uh, Johnny O's hand, he had, his blisters were so bad. Had to shoot his hands up with cortisone so he could just hold on, you know. And we had all these big shields and, and stuff on our bikes, and I got a flat tire because of the rocks. And so I had, I think I got 15th out of 42 guys in the second second moto with a flat tire. I think I, you know, they needed that extra point or two, and I was pretty good on a flat tire. So I was, as when I go down the start straight, away, when you got a flat tire, the bike, unless you're going absolutely straight, it's going to want to drift. Whatever way you're turning, it always wants to drift out on you. And so I'd be going down the, the straightaway where the pit row, and all the all the mechanics say, oh, Gibson's coming, you know, and they'd all run. They'd all take off because I'd be going wide open on this 500 sideways down the straightaway, spraying rocks all the way down a pit row. Uh, there was a buzz after he won that moto the second weekend on the 500 in Switzerland. Uh, th there was like a, wow, man, this guy, <laughs> he's on a roll, you know, and I'm like, yeah, he's on my team, too. Yeah, yeah. And between motos, I'm trying to rest and keep cool and elevate my feet and, you know, get in as much food and drink and everything, do everything right, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Danny, he, he's like just uh, kind of still bouncing off the wall. You know, he, I, I don't think Danny ever really got tired. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, I, I don't think he had a training program, and, and the, his lifestyle uh, was so active and and kind of nuts, you know, mm -hmm. that training was like, that just would have put him over the limit for what his body could actually endure and still have some battery left for the weekend. He knew what he was doing, and it, the results proved it. So after that first moto, yeah, there was a buzz. Like, wow, it, you know, can you imagine if he wins this whole, you know, kind of like Ricky, that first perfect season. As he got close, we're like, dang, yep. this might happen. And everyone senses it, you know? So there was, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the Europeans are saying. I don't speak, you know, all these different languages, but I know they were, they were on to it. And then that final moto, you know, as they got close to the finish, the fans were going nuts. Kind of like that NM86 race, you know, to me always, I, it wasn't like the most, you know, aggressive or whatever I've ever ridden. I just managed to be able to outlast Rick. And uh, But the fans were, they knew something was up. And towards those last few laps, I figured, you know, judging from the fans right now and their reaction, how loud this is, it's probably going to talk about this one for a while. And that 82 thing was, was the same way, maybe more so, because it wasn't just one event, four. Yeah, it's all you remember. Sure, we won the race, but it was it was just all about Magoo's being on it that weekend. It was just, or it was two weekends back then. So he was just uh, on another planet, just riding. It was it was amazing. We're all doing our jobs too, and we we're pretty consistent. All of the other three guys and uh, and Danny, but Danny was just winning every moto that there was and just demolishing everybody. You know, he pulled a whole shot in Switzerland from a. 
not the best place to start. He did a third gear start on 500 worth bike and just that's the picture that, that Rob has painted of him where he's like got a 40 or 50 yard lead heading into the first turn up. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. And, um, but again, you know, he, did, he wasn't swapping and out of control. He was just fast. I remember Hawk and Carlquist you know, he was fairly animated, and, and he, he was a stubborn guy, you know. I mean, he's a he's a Viking, you know. I remember him just kicking the can around like, un, I can't, we're, we're being uh, we're being recorded now, and unfreaking believable right? I mean, I think yeah. that, that everybody felt that way. As, as good as I felt, even on the 500 in Switzerland, I, nobody could touch Danny. He was unbelievably fast, and uh, rocks like baseballs. Not exaggerating. Some of them even bigger. And he's like, I don't need a chest protector. Well, it's whole shot. <laughs> you know, he's, he was just um, a one of a kind. You know, and it's a privilege to be there. And the final moto was real fitting. You know, I mean, to for me anyway, personally, just I had caught up to him a little bit in that last race. We went one two, and I knew we'd wrapped it up for the second week in a row. And and as he went across the finish line, I think he wanted to turn around the bike and ride across backwards. He was pretty good at that. <laughs> uh-huh. But I was pretty close to him, so he just decided, ah, he did like this one-handed wheelie across the finish line, and the fans had jumped the fence, and, you know, Arnold and all the mechanics and Roger, everyone. It was like watching a, a Tour de France climb where the people crowd the sides of the track or yeah. the road. And I, I got to ride right behind him and just watch that whole scene. And if I could have had a camera or something, you know. I mean, I have the mental snapshot, but it was pretty special. And then Danny carried Johnny to the trophy presentation because Johnny had broken his foot in the final laps on a wooden stake. Then uh, right after the, we got back to the hotel, we learned that Donnie came out of his coma. Hansen did come out of his coma and did try racing toward the tail end of the 1983 season. But it didn't work out, and he told Dave Arnold his professional racing days were done. Meanwhile, back in Europe in 82, there was another physical ailment, one very strange, that affected Magoo. He was stung by a bee, and he had an allergic reaction. Um, there was yeah. the bee sting situation, I guess, on the final moto or... or oh, my God. Explain okay. That okay. That was, that was the icing on the cake because, because, you know, again, the Europeans thought the guy was crazy. And the Europeans, they never, you know, the guys possessed or maybe, I mean, maybe it was unsaid, but, he, you know, it was always a possibility he was on drugs. I mean, he certainly rides like he's from some other planet, right? They're, they're, they're not. And uh, I come back after that performance, and it, there was the crowd was, was really deep in, in Germany. And uh, I come back after the second moto, and I remember an F, there was a nurse, and of course, when Danny came off the track, somebody had tipped off the nurse that he had this bee sting and he was allergic and he needed uh, some antivenom or whatever they call that stuff. And so this nurse somehow, um, she understood enough English that she went and got this, this um, she had a syringe and she was coming into the pits. Well, this FIM official, you know, you had all of Europe thinking the guy was on crack or something, right? And, uh, and here's this FIM official and he's got this nurse by, you know, he's got her hands up in the air. She's got a syringe, and it's in the Honda pits. And he's, like, yelling things like, Danny's going to be disqualified, and he's doping and drugs. And, oh, my gosh, I thought the guy was on heroin. I mean, 
I mean, you know, I didn't know what to think when I came back to the pit area. And then Danny had already, I guess, I don't know what it feels like. Your body's covered with ants or what type, what it feels like. But he was down to his underwear, and he was going through Steve Carter's mechanic's toolbox looking for a wire brush, and he was scratching his skin frantically, not lightly. I mean, shredding his skin trying to relieve whatever this pain was or itch associated with this bee sting and uh what a sight with all that drama hanging in the pits in the background team usa had won the motocross and trophy nations again and it was a feeling like none other for the team members let's first talk to jim gibson i think it was i don't know when you do motocross you know after the race and if you've done if you've done well i mean it's hard to fly any higher than that because i always remember i felt so good after putting two 45-minute motos in, and it's, it's so much effort, but I think I flew a little higher that day than I ever had before, and it was just, it was a great feeling, and just to be there with the team and all the guys, and, you know, I guess we, as the underdogs, we kind of pulled it off, and just, uh, you know, we were teammates and, and a bunch of great guys to boot, and uh, I don't know, it's hard to describe. Here you are in Europe. That was my first trip ever to Europe, too, so that was pretty pretty unusually overwhelming to even, you know, it's just sure. so much coming at you, it's hard to even digest it all, but uh, yeah, I remember it was, uh, it was a great, great feeling. The only rider who was on the team in 81 and 82 is Johnny O'Mara, and he was understandably thrilled, and still is to this day. Like, I, I almost enjoyed racing that particular race, or any, any race in Europe, like, I almost want to say more than, uh, than even like some of the races I do in the United States. There's something about it was so special. I mean, I think it's literally like the Olympics, you know, like it was that type of atmosphere. I love the way the people treated uh, treated us over there. They, I mean, they really grew fond of the Americans, and it was like um, very special. And I, I still look at that today. Like uh, I remember even just, you know, when I worked with Ricky a lot, I go, you know, before Ricky even went to motocross the nations, and uh, I go, man, it's so special. He, he didn't really know how to think about it or to absorb that, but he's the same way. Like, all those motocross nation things are so special to Ricky and anybody that really got a piece of that over the years. Well, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate. I mean, you look, if you look back at Danny, and uh, he did a lot for Honda. He did a lot for the team. He did a lot for the sport. The, the, the whole, it, it, it does let you look back and reflect at a time that uh, some very good memories. I mean, the whole thing of Americans going to Europe and kind of establish, kind of, kind of reversing the whole wave and the whole superiority and the whole, the whole status of American motocross. As perhaps only Bailey can, let's let him wrap up the thoughts of Team USA on Danny McGoo Chandler. It's hard to compare, but you know, whatever you've seen. Stewart or Carmichael or, or Wyndham or Reed or Villapoto or anybody great do that was just mind-blowing, you can't help but turn to the person next to you like, oh, did yeah. I see that? Yeah, yeah. And that was Danny the whole entire time. And so, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's difficult to, to compare, but it was as fast as anything I've ever seen. Yeah. You know? And I miss them, you know, and, and to, to just add, I mean, it, I've had a lot of people call me, what happened? And, you know, I mean, what happened was he, he had an unfortunate crash in Paris in 1985. You know, that's what happened. And, and I'm sad a little bit that he's gone, but what I'm really sad about was 
that he had to live in that condition for 25 years. You know, that's, I know what it's like to be, you know, in a wheelchair and be limited in some ways, but I can use my arms. You know, if I'd have been injured like Danny, I wouldn't have done TV. I wouldn't have done the Iron Man. I probably wouldn't have my daughter, Jenny. Mm -hmm. And maybe not my wife. Mm -hmm. It's heavy to be injured the way Danny was. And I think I'm very surprised uh, that his body hung on that long and that he hung on that long and uh, whatever things he had to do along the way to sort of tolerate it all and kind of tune out at times, you know, that, that's, that's hard on your system and I completely understand. And, uh, you know, it just kind of shows how long he made it, just how tough he was. You know, the, the people that break their neck that high up and are that limited, that make it that long, are the ones that were, that are just, have always been incredibly tough with incredible resolve and just could eat nails for breakfast and like it. You know, Danny was, he was rare. And I'm glad I got to see him at his, at his peak. And maybe I'll see him again someday. Who knows? They'll be trimming tree branches wherever he's at. Now, we could wrap this up with the Team USA perspective on Danny Chandler, but let's get the European side. And for that, we've tracked down the ultimate moto journalist, Sir Jack Burnicle. The Brit was on top of the European racing scene back in the early 1980s when this took place, and perhaps no one can account for those weekends in the same way Sir Jack can. So let's turn it over to him. It was, um, it was immense, really, because uh, he just made such an impact on everybody with his, uh, his sheer kind of... Uh, joy really it wasn't just it was just the way it was uh, on the bike and off the bike uh-huh. um, like uh, rider presentations uh, he was taking the piss out of the other out of his teammates especially Gibson mercilessly and uh, at presentations uh, and the prize givings um, he was the same uh-huh. uh, absolutely wild with the champagne and uh, in fact the beaten Belgians um, Andre Bormans handed over their second place champagne to him as well and they thought well he might as well use this as well and he promptly uh, he promptly completely drowned himself and Johnny O with it and in fact at uh, the presentation in Germany after the trophy test it was in a huge tent traditionally it was in a huge tent a kind of beer tent in Germany and he, uh, uh-huh. he turned it on himself and Dave Arnold there completely drenched Dave and completely soaked himself <laughs> So he was just, people just loved him for the complete uh, insanity, really. i tell you what he did as well, that, that uh, rather, did. the problem for Roger and Dave was trying to keep him under control, really. Sure. You know, he wanted to be out on the track all the time, and they were kind of trying to prevent him being out on the track all the time, so that he didn't get hurt. Because <laughs> every time he rode, I guess you were taking that chance. Yeah, exactly. And he, uh, and even, he didn't even have to be riding it. He was in... Um, in Switzerland, he was performing handstands, bloody great cartwheels through the pits in his full riding gear. And he had a huge crash. You know, he could have done himself damage off the bike quite easily. So uh, one of the great highlights was uh, the first race of the 500s in Switzerland. Uh, he was, um, he had, uh, he had Thorpe. Thorpe was in his last two international races for Kawasaki before being hired by Honda. Uh-huh. And, uh, Thorpe just chased and chased through that first race and, and couldn't quite get near him and then his, uh, his 
rear brake snapped off and he, uh, he dropped back a bit after that. But it was a great, it was a great um, battle between the two of them for that first half of the first race. And afterwards, Thorpe said, you know, I'm used to being able to gradually catch people if I just ride my own pace. But eventually I started to get as wild as, 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 Donny was, as Danny was to try and catch him. And it still didn't work. He said he was absolutely on the case and on the pace. And, and in the other great, he also had a great fight with Romans in the second race. Remember, Romans had finished runner-up to Lackey in the 500 GPs. Yep. And um, he eventually got the better of him. I think Andre just wilted, really. He got tired, which Danny never did. And uh, and in the 250 trophy designations at Gaeldorf, uh, this one, the outstanding, I think the second race, huge four-wheel, eight-wheeler between him, O'Mara, Romans, and Thorpe. Fantastic race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A wonderful four-way scrap that was. And uh, and and Magoo, if you remember, Magoo uh, Thorpe hurt himself and had to pull in and uh, Danny got the best of the other two and then um, pulled his face goggles down at the uh, with a couple of laps to go and got stung by a bee you remember and he had to get he had to have an injection he collapsed after he crossed the line and had to have an injection afterwards right well you see we I, I, I think uh, everybody has days when you know those guys who ride on the edge they always have wonderful days when it goes right all the way don't they yeah yep um Another outstanding week. example was Pitt Byra, mm -hmm. who, 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 got, who absolutely destroyed the opposition at uh, Nîmes in a motocross de, de Nation, and he never really rode that, like, quite like that before or after. But that day, he, he stayed glued to the bike, and he was, and, and he was simply magnificent and unbeatable. Right. And, and that, was, that was what Magoo was like for those two weekends. But he didn't... I, I'm pretty convinced, if I remember this right, in the, there was a a part of the Gaeldorf track, it was a kind of meadow up above at the very top end of the circuit. And, and uh, Magoo, it, despite Roger and Dave trying to get him to stop, Magoo was just charging on round during Sunday morning time training, um, right up until the end. And I was taking photographs up in that meadow where there was a big fast ramp jump through the treetops. Um, and there was nobody there, absolutely nobody there. It was just a deserted field. And Magoo was almost the only rider left on the track, tramping on round. And I seem to remember he had a huge crash off there. This was like a completely meaningless exercise. He was just <laughs> loving being out on the bike. Uh -huh. And he just went bald end over end off this big fast jump track, and a uh, jump, and he, he, um, he uh, picked himself up, you know, and um, just kind of took him and his... Uh, rode him and, him and his bike, fortunately, in one piece, back to the pit. After he completes his four-moto sweep and they win the donations and for the second year in a row, what is oh, the reaction? Can I just say piece? something else? Excuse oh, sure, me, I've got sure. to say something else, Jason, yep. on English behalf here. <laughs> is that, and this is critical. Uh, Graham Noyce got injured between the two weekends in a practice oh, in geez. a practice accident. Wow. So, uh, and he was looking for, and so we only had a three-man team uh, for the for the MX days on the 500s. And Noyce, as a, as the runner-up in the 500 GPs in '81 and the world champion in '79, he was really looking forward to to uh, sticking one over the Americans at Wallen. But he wasn't there to race, so we only had a three-man team. So, I just want to make that point. So, Thorpe, did Thorpe <laughs> come back? Yeah, you got to get the facts right. 
Bob did say afterwards that Magoo was good. <laughs> he said he was good and he was stronger than me. I've got to get fitter, he said. Um, okay, so even more so then, you have the, the Americans are kind of new on the scene winning here and the, the British team had some bad luck. So what is the reaction when it is over uh, from the European side? Were they bummed? Did they just think it was great to watch this great performance? What was the reaction? Well, they, 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 everybody just admired the performance, especially by Chandler, because he was far and away the most consistent of the Americans. Oh, okay, so there was full and, appreciation. Uh, they, they, it, it, no, it was just huge. I mean, there were like uh, about 25, there were 25,000 people at each event, and, uh, and he was just a kind of uh, uh, a hero, really. You've obviously seen a lot of great rides, and like you said, it happens. It seems strange. Sometimes guys light fire in the donations, like Paul Malin did, and, and you mentioned Pit Buyer and whatnot. Sebastian Tortelli, I remember, kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, so where does this one rank? Um, uh, probably ranks right at the top, I would say. Wow. Because that uh, no one had, no one had uh, come near achieving that, that quartet of victories in both those events before. I mean, he was just so violently spectacular. Yeah. Just, um, and, and as I say, because he carried that character off the track as well, um, that's, that meant that people... Uh, you know, that people really like that kind of bubbliness. He, he, it was like he was never really taking it too seriously, and yet he was, you know. He was fairly, he was a pretty intense rider on the track. Right. But he, was, he just always seemed to be just absolutely en enjoying himself, really ballsy character, having a lot of fun. I'm impressed that the European riders or fans or whatnot, um, they actually had respect. I figured it would become like going into enemy territory, but... Um it doesn't sound like the riders really. No, 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 no. There was there was always um, huge respect and admiration for the American riders. That's why, you know, it was on the back of that that the um, that Paris Bercy Supercross and the Genoa Supercrosses were were launched really uh -huh. um, on the backs of reputations of people like um, Chandler and O'Mara, Johnson, Bailey on the backs of. Well, it certainly was a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to Sir Jack, a true inspiration for all of us who make our living as motocross journalists these days. He was a true pioneer and a groundbreaker, so I thank him much for his time. Also, a big thanks to everyone from Team USA who helped us out and answered our phone calls about Danny Magoo Chandler, Johnny O'Mara, David Bailey, Jim Gibson, and Dave Arnold. It was great hearing the old stories from those guys, and we hope that you folks listening at home or on a run or at your office or wherever you listen to these shows, hope you enjoyed it as well. Ping and I will be back next week to answer some more of your burning questions. Continue to send us topic suggestions to jasonw at racerxonline.com. One of these weeks, we'll actually get to one of the suggestions you've had for us. We've got a lot of topics to cover on this show. Hope you enjoyed it. And most importantly, Godspeed, Danny Magoo Chandler.